when people think of value, they usually think of material value. Like my $5 is worth a Starbucks. So that's like material value is being exchanged, what you think something's worth. But then like emotional value being exchanged is way more powerful than the material value. Dude, they're gonna do deals with you. They're gonna wanna be around you. They're gonna do favors for you. And that's not in a bad way, but just like if you reverse that and you come into a conversation like happy upbeat and that person drains your emotional value, you're not gonna wanna be around Today them. Today we got a very special guest. We got my friend, Brian McFarland. Brian, what's going on, man? Jake, homie. Great to be here. I'm glad you got this thing launched and you, you know, honored me with a little invite here. Totally, totally. So me and Brian had some, as per every podcast, some technical issues going in with the audio output. So little tense, little tense, little stress to start the morning, but uh, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a Friday morning without that, right? Dude, if that stressed us out, we got big problems then. I know. I know. Well, I got a. <laughs> You're sitting in San Diego. I'm sitting in Florida. Sun is out. Life is good. It's a great point. It's a great point. I did get the workout and sauna in this morning with a little nice. cold shower. To ice. My stress levels are already pretty low. So my go-to Jake has been. So I'm I'm down in Florida for for a month. I live in uh, outside Philly for the audience to know, um, but. I'm in Northeast Florida, so it's a little chilly here, but I mean, it obviously warms up during the, the day, but it's definitely not pool weather. So my go-to is, you know, since my, I don't have an ice bath here, is just jumping, waking up at 5 a.m. and immediately jumping in the pool and like the amazing shock to the system and then go to the outdoor shower. It's just a great way to start the day. I love that. I love that. And the pool's probably pretty chilly there that time of year, Oh right? yeah, dude. It's probably like 50, I'm guessing. I love yeah, it's, that. Not, it's not warm. I'll tell you that much. If I, if I remember right, I think you still get a ton of the benefits of, uh, I think cold plunges go down to like 40 degrees or something, which is just brutal. Yeah. But I think you get a ton of benefits even at like 50 or 55 degrees. That's, I'm just saying I'm getting the benefits. <laughs> Either way, it feels good. Love it. Love it. So maybe that's a great, that's a good place to, to kick things off, Brian. Month, I think if I remember right, you spend a, a month in, in Florida with the, the family every year. How, how'd that come to be? Yeah. I mean, my wife and I, like we're big on just curating our lifestyle. Um, you know, just, you know, I'm 42. We started doing this like three years ago. So snowboarding at a very young age, relatively speaking. And so we, we were homeschooling our kids during COVID. And we're like, you know, I can work kind of remote. Um, I had to fly, may have to fly up once or twice to the Philadelphia area, but which isn't a big deal. So it's just like, let's, you know, live outside the normal box and, you know, spend some time in Florida uh, during the terrible winter months of the Northeast. Uh, so we started doing that a couple of years ago and it's been definitely life-giving. I love that. And um, I know you work so hard to, to build that lifestyle, building yes. up your, your business at JDM, you know, building up the short-term rentals, getting some systems and processes in place. So that's so great to see that you're able to spend that month in Florida, get out of the brutal, Philly, cold and dark in winter and, and get down to Florida and just get that uh, that quality time with the family. Yeah, man. I mean, hey, you did it full-time in San Diego. You made the plunge from Philly out there. So uh, kudos to you for making that move and just really prioritizing lifestyle over everything else. 
Yeah, totally. I think that's something we've talked about a lot offline, Brian, right? It's tough, right? Like I struggle with it um, all the time is chasing the financial aspect versus the lifestyle. Where's the balance? Like there's a, I think there's a certain point where you say, all right, I have enough. Let me prioritize the lifestyle. But I do think that there's a opportunity to chase both. So so it's an interesting discussion for sure. Yeah, I think one feeds the other, you know, like me just being down here. I just got down here like a week ago and it was great. I was in Stowe, Vermont with a mastermind trip last week. So going from like snowboarding for a week to Florida was phenomenal. But you know, the first few days when I was here, Jake, I'd walk outside and it's just almost like there's hope in the air, (laughs) you know, like the warm sun, like just the ocean breeze. And I think to your point, it, it can foster both sides because when you feel that hope, when you feel like that renewed energy, it just makes you want to hit it harder on the work side too. Totally, totally. So important, uh, especially get out in that sunshine after you know spending a couple months in Philly. And then to your point, sounds like you're in Vermont for the Go Abundance trip. So correct, um, yep. We should definitely talk about that today as well. So me and Brian are both in a mastermind group called Go Abundance. Something I preach or talk about a lot on this podcast is just the power of these mastermind groups. And it's worth every penny and some, right? Like it's infinite ROI, in my opinion, joining yeah. these mastermind groups. Maybe later on, be interested to hear uh, how that trip went and if you had any key takeaways. Yeah, man. Um, but why don't we, um, we talked a little bit about how you got to the point where you can uh, spend a month with your family in Florida, right? And I, I just know from knowing you personally that you uh, own and operate JDM, which is a family business. Can you give yes. us a little bit of uh, background on what JDM does? How you got, you know, how, you know, what you do, how you got into it, the progression of all of that would, would love to hear more about that business. Yeah, I'll do my best to explain it. I explain it to people. And most people are just like, I still don't understand what you do. Um, <laughs> so we, we're, we're in the manufacturing space, which, uh, you know, I think for your generation, my generation, you know, we don't understand manufacturing as just a blanket statement. We're more you know, uh, ingrained with service, you know, uh, software, things of that nature. But essentially, we represent about, you know, 15, 20 different manufacturers, be it sheet metal fabrication, fabrication, injection molding, machining, uh, some electronics. And our job is to go out and find customers for these companies that we represent. So I'll go into a division of Johnson and Johnson. They're coming out with a new medical device and there might be like a little machined part that goes in that medical device. I'll meet with procurement or engineers and we'll bid on that part with one of the machine shops I represent. And then our agency gets commissions from that transaction. So my grandfather started the company in 1970. My father took it over in around 1984. I took it over in 2017-ish. So uh, it's been like a great story. I mean, we're 50 years old. My grandfather, my father really laid down an amazing foundation and base. When I first started working for us, our company, you know, we represented like eight companies, you know, now we're up to, you know, 20-ish. Uh, so, I mean, we've really grown and prospered and had some good fortune over the years. The amazing thing is, you know, it's time consuming, but it still allows me some flexibility to dip my toe into real estate like me and you have done and, and do some other projects that might fill my soul a little more than just the agency. Very cool. So you took it over in 2017, Brian, and then were you working? Is this like a company you worked at straight out of college prior to actually taking over the company? Great question. Clarifying question there. So 
I got out of college, finance degree. If I had no intention or thoughts of going into business with my father, I wish he would have even like floated that. For some reason, I just didn't think it was going to happen or I didn't really want to. Uh, or I would have gotten an engineering degree. So right out of school, went into banking. So I was in banking for like six months. So this was in 2004. So I was in banking for like six months. And then, you know, my father had to bring somebody on. He was like at this like kind of crossroads in the business. So he just floated the idea by me and we came up with an arrangement and I started working for him. And it was a struggle the first five or 10 years getting things going. Uh, but then we kind of started putting more systems in place, more softwares internally, some SOPs and, uh, you know, started making traction. But uh, yeah, so I've been pushing 20 years with the company. What were uh, some of the struggles? Do you mean struggles like from a relationship perspective, working with your your father and, and, and getting through that or more so just like growing the business? So it was, you know, he had kind of a learn by fire mentality uh, where he's just like, all right, this is who we sell for. Go start selling, you know, not like, hey, here's some of my smaller customers, grow them. <laughs> here's some like, like solid leads, call them. It was like, straight from scratch. So it was a struggle for me because I saw my peers, you know, making really good money, compounding their, you know, their personal businesses or even growing through the corporate ladder. And I'm still making like entry level wages for a while. And my dad always told me though, he's just like, hey, you put the work in, you know, all the guys, all my peers were ahead of me. And then I just catapulted them, you know, in my mid 40s. Uh, luckily it didn't take me till the mid forties to, to catapult my peers, but it, he was right. It happened eventually just through the process. I mean, I know you have a sales background and eventually it hit me between the eyes after like three, four years. Cause I was, I mean, I was young. I was kind of like dicking around a little, I'm not going to lie that I, I really started dialing and having KPIs internally. My dad didn't like, didn't have any of that type of stuff or any type of structure, know how to, to nurture a salesperson. He's just said, you know, start working. So I, I just started creating my own KPIs. And once I started hitting those milestones where I knew like, hey, I need to take, make 10 calls, which you'll appreciate. I need to make 10 calls to reach three people. I need to reach 10 people to get one meeting. Okay, let's work that backwards. How many calls do I need to make in a week if I want to have like four meetings a week? So I started learning my numbers. And then once I learned my numbers, then it was just like, let's go. That's awesome. And that's such a good point in sales and really anything in life. It's so important to put some sort of goals and KPIs around what you're trying to accomplish. Otherwise, you're just kind of flying blind, right? Like you can still accomplish some really great stuff. But unless you know what you're aiming for and you say, okay, this is my end goal. It's just take revenue, right? Like I want yeah. to generate a million dollars of revenue. My average customer is $50,000. It takes this many discovery calls to land this many customers customers and it takes this many cold calls and this many emails and you can kind of just work backwards and then you really can create an outline, uh, especially in something like sales where it's like, all right, I, in order to do that at a very high level, I need to make 50 calls a day. I need to send 25 emails. I need to get on X discovery calls in the funnel. If you hit those numbers, it's, you know, four disciplines of execution, the book, the lead and yeah. lag measures, and, and it works. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. You, you nailed it. And, and I mean, hey, you know it and you lived it. So totally. So let's fast forward. So 27, so you were working in the business and then 20, 2017 hit and it sounds like your your father stepped away from the business and and you took over mm -hmm. yep um there was not i mean he was kind of checked out jake probably three four years before that so i was kind of running the business anyway uh which 
I mean, to his credit, he worked his ass off forever. So it didn't didn't matter to me. But yeah, so but once I started, I took over the business and then kind of some, we'll say profit sharing shifted. <laughs> um, then, you know, I, I, I was started making a lot better money uh, because, you know, the commissions that were coming in that I was generating, you know, a large chunk of them weren't going to him, you know, I was actually keeping them for myself. So that's when I started, you know, thinking about investing or like, what am I going to do with this? I mean, it, I remember even just like our our furnace going at our house and being like, that was like 16 grand, be like, wow, I can buy this with cash, like for the first time, you know, having that realization is is so, so freeing. Um, but after, you know, those things, it's just like, okay, what, what am I going to do? next. Um, and that's when, you know, real estate and, you know, other avenues started to, to come into my stratosphere. Yeah, let's hear about that. So you're making this discretionary income. And I think a lot of people, Brian, would just say, oh, cool. And, you know, make super conservative investments, right? They'd put it in there. Some people, if really old school people just keep it in their bank account yep. uh, or put it in a money market account, or maybe just do a traditional you know, index funds or whatever. That that's what the majority of people would do. So how do you how do you land on real estate? Is that something you've always been interested in? Like how how do you decide that's where you wanted to place your money? So I mean I I fell into it. So I was in full disclosure, I was like, you know, fire movement was kind of like going. So I was like, all right, let's throw some cash in index funds and like, you know, I was doing that, which I still I still believe in there's many legs to a stool. Like I still max out my 401k every year with in our group of peers that we hang out with, Jake, like people might laugh at that, but I pay myself through a W-2, so it helps out there. Tax um, advantage. Yeah, it's a, it's a tax advantage and like, why not? You know, so because it's it's 20 grand. But another thing is, yes, people could be doing that or they could also, once they get that discretionary income, they start keeping up with the Joneses, you know? So they're buying the bigger house. They're buying the more expensive cars. They're like doing those types of things. And I did not want to fall into that trap. It's such a slippery slope and so easy. Like I almost wanted to feel like I was still poor. So in 2019, my wife and I were at the beach and we're like, you know what? I think we're mountain people. Like we might get into it. I race ultra marathon. So I'm constantly, you know, running mountains, running trails. So I just love, you know, that the outdoors and that, that arena. So, um, we, we went up to the Pocono mountains of Pennsylvania and we've got an Airbnb in this community, this lake community. And we are like, oh, we'll just buy a piece of land up here and park an RV. And my wife like reached out on Zillow to like this, a random realtor, which you never do I was yelling at her I'm like your phone is just gonna blow up for the next like 10 days <laughs> so anyway we we uh a realtor's like hey your Airbnb is like you know five houses from this lakefront that's going on the market so we went and looked at this lakefront property it was actually three lots even though it was listed as one beautiful view of beautiful view of a sunrise over a lake and the house was in complete disarray and we just fell in love so uh we bought it we then you know covid hit and we spent time rehabbing it and you know started our airbnb journey with that property and i mean that property just to give some numbers and context we bought for 275 uh we probably put like 30 40 grand into it and it would kick off like a buck 10 to a buck 20 a year but like we were netting like 70 grand a year you know it was 
just insane profit on that property. So once we started tasting that income, and luckily my wife would, you know, manage all of that, then it's just like, all right, sh- let's get another one. You know, this is working. And this was kind of before the the Airbnb short term rental, you know, boom of like, oh, yeah. that's the way to make million <laughs> become a millionaire. We nobody was really doing it, um, even though that wasn't that long ago. Uh, so that's when we just started, you know, taking that cash and pouring it into other ones. That's so cool. And I think you exited that property recently, right? So it sounds like you're in it for call it uh, what two eighty or something like that. And and how much did you just sell it for again? We just sold it for just uh, just under seven hundred. So wow. we walked away away with like four hundred ish you know, in cash. So, and people might say like, why did you walk away from that property when it was cash flowing so well? Every market's trying to, when I say market, I mean like county, district, township is trying to figure out this whole Airbnb thing. The Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania are really trying to figure it out. And HOAs, they can stick their tentacles in there and really disturb the ecosystem. So we were kind of nervous that short-term rentals would go away from, go away in this community and our, you know, our value would drop tremendously. And also pigs get fed, fed, hogs get slaughtered. We didn't want (laughs) to, we wanted to take some chips off the table. So yes, we sold that. And then I, you know, 1031 exchanged that into a, to an office complex, which my business now operates out of. And we nine suites in there and we take up one of the suites. Love that. Love that. And I mean, to your point, you made so much cash. I mean, that's a home run deal. First of all, Brian, that's amazing. It was, you know, just the cash flow is spinning off and then 400k profit. And I think this is actually, so you guys decided to redeploy it into the, the office building, which is great. But I think this is something that's not discussed enough is I think a lot of people are locked into these like great interest rates, for instance, and have all this equity sitting in, in their house. And uh, they say, oh, I'm locked in a, you know, 3% interest rate. And they're like, I'm, I'm never going to sell this place. I'm going to, you know, whatever. I'm like, okay, well, I get it. You're, let's say it's a rental property. You're cash flowing more, but you have half a million dollars sitting in that house. I, I bring out a piece of paper and I show the, you know, I'll show someone 10 times out of 10. If you redeploy that 500K into a lot of different investments, you're going to be making, let's say, a 3% interest rate is where you're locked versus 6% on the refinance or the sale where you could pull that cash out. It's probably, you know, maybe a thousand bucks or whatever it is, 1500 bucks difference on your mortgage payment. But if you redeploy 500K cash, you're going to be making a lot more money than that. So I feel like a lot of people don't think about that. And it's it's really cool that you guys took the chips off the table and redeployed those funds into um, in, uh, an asset that uh, that was important to you. Yeah. And it also was, you know, that was uh, we at that time we had five STRs. And I'm not saying that's a lot, but I mean, it was, it was a big chunk of, you know, my financial picture. So I just felt like the timing was right. And sometimes we get so caught up in the identity of owning an asset class or what have you that you can't see the bigger picture. Totally. And uh, it's such a good point about the um, the HOA. So I, I own in the Poconos as well, as you know, Brian. And man, I think in the Poconos and a lot of other markets, these regulations are coming in hard. Um, I actually think that's why there's, uh, as you know, I'm going for hard in the boutique hotel space because- yep. These ho- if you find these markets where the regulations are coming in fast and furious, which is a lot of markets, uh, if boutique hotels, you can still list your rooms on these OTAs like Airbnb and, and VRBO, uh, but you don't and you don't have to abide by the short term rental regulations because it's zoned hospitality. So if imagine there's no short term rentals or very few because it's so regulated, uh, if you own a hotel in that area, you're gonna be, I mean, supply and demand, right? You have something and there's no other houses to rent out. 
out. So I think yeah. there's a huge yeah. uh, opportunity there. But something folks should be aware of for sure is these uh, regulations when you buy. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's I mean that's a crapshoot in all these markets. It really is, and that's why people went to the Smokies. You know, that bust boom and bust in the Smokies is because the regulations were so loose there. Right. Yeah, I think the Smokies is a whole another story. Right. That's. Uh, <laughs> It's like the, the modern gold rush. Yeah, exactly. I mean, anyway, that's like we go down there. rabbit hole there. For sure. So let's shift to St. Augustine. So that's where you're currently spending time. And we both own properties there. I don't know yeah. if I've ever asked you. So obviously, as a little bit of background, Brian is actually the one who got me into short-term rentals. I thought it was, I had owned some long-term rentals at the time. And I was that, oh, short-term rentals are so risky if, you know, things go south, you know, this place isn't going to rent and yada, yada, which is actually true. Um, like, I don't know, all of our places in St. Augustine, if regulations ever came in, like we'd probably get like pennies on the dollar for <laughs> long-term <Yep>. rents compared <laughs> to what it's worth. But it, it, a market like St. Augustine is pretty bulletproof because so much of their business and the the economy, economy is built around yeah. it. Like it's, yep. it's pretty risk-free. So I actually recommend anyone getting into short-term rentals to look at markets like that. Um, but yeah, Brian got me into short-term rentals and I took the leap of faith after seeing what he was doing. And man, I, I caught the bug fast. Um, and I actually jumped into the St. Augustine market because of you. I uh, already yep. had the connections there. It's just, I was like, all right, I'll start here. And I really liked it. But how, how do you, uh, how do you choose that market? So we were like, we want, knew we wanted to come to Florida or at least down south. Uh, and, you know, we had the first one we got was in the Poconos, you know, it was doing really well. Then we're like, all right, we love coming up here. And as a family, so a lot of it was family values driven too. you know, creating experience, creating memories for not just me and my kids and my wife, uh, but also, you know, extended family that would come and, you know, use the place and do ski trips. And like, you know, that's so important. And we all remember those moments when we're kids. So uh, we're like, all right, well, let's do something south, you know, do something in the warm weather. And so we were looking in at the west coast of, of Florida, like Anna Maria Island, we came very close to, which is super popular destination. But what we found was that the, the numbers down there compared to the St. Augustine market were way less. And the reason is like nobody really goes there in the summer. It's super seasonal because it's so darn hot. And St. Augustine, you know, it's the oldest city or the first city in America. So you have the historic downtown, which is such a draw uh, with Flagler University there. And then you have the beach. So it's this combination of like not just beach, you have other things to do. And it's close to Atlanta. You know, people in the Northeast can drive here and it's more year around than, you know, Southern Florida is. And there's a guy I'm in business with, I own, I own a machine shop with, and he had a, a property down here, you know, and he kind of got into the short-term rental game a little after I did, uh, but he started in St. Augustine and he was telling me how he was doing. So, you know, this is what, that's why we came down here, started looking at properties and, you know, picked up two, you know, right away. I remember when you picked those up, I think that, so me and Brian are in a, what you call a pod uh, within our mastermind mm -hmm. group where me, him, and a few other guys meet weekly. And I think one of the first things you did was, was bring that deal <laughs> I think uh, so. to the table. And it's, 
it's funny and it just goes to show I'm a huge advocate of like thinking for yourself and making your own decisions because I think you brought that deal to a, a call and I had brought in a deal to a call and rightfully so there's some guys in our pot who are like you know I don't know if that deal works because yeah. from like a long-term rental standpoint it didn't work right and that's like right when short-term rentals are really picking up traction so it's like you know if you're doing flips or you're thinking of from like a long-term rental lens that deal like doesn't work and it's really risky but you decided i think the numbers look really good and there you got enough positive feedback you're like i i believe in this deal and i move yep. forward with it and uh if i remember correctly that was like a home run deal is like back-to-back houses beach access two mm-hmm. pools like it just ended up being a slam dunk right oh totally yeah so you know this was this was like my first you know large purchase so i was obviously very nervous and skittish going into it and the person that uh Jake's talking about that was very like, no, don't buy it was he's in this market, you know, so he knows this market. Well, he's he's just like, that's way too expensive. Uh, So I mean, obviously, that's going to make me super hesitant. But something in my gut was like, this property is so unique, like it's proven, you know, it's been an Airbnb for like one or two years at that point. And like you said, yeah, it's two houses that are back to back share a fence. So you can, you know, have two families, but you're running between the properties and there's two pools, there's a massive uh, tiki bar right in the center. So it's just like a really unique setup. And my wife and I, we immediately fell in love with the property. And luckily, my wife is a charmer and the person selling it, she's a realtor, also owned it. And she didn't want to sell the property at all, but her husband did. So we were in the car about to leave and my wife, Jessie, runs back in and is just starts talking to this woman. She's like, I can envision like our family extended feeling coming <laughs> here. And my wife starts tearing up and she start, the realtor starts tearing up. So I mean, our offer wasn't the best offer, but they, you know, sold it to us. And like, I mean, that's where I'm sitting right now. We absolutely love this space. So that's, that's so cool. Um, Especially that she threw her personal touch on that. And I feel like that's not talked about enough. Like it's not always the best and the, the highest offer. There's like terms that matter in a deal. And then also just like a personal component, right? I think that's super important. Yes. Um, yes. I, I mean, those in, like I've been actually talking about this a lot, Jake, recently is I, I think I may have brought this up on our recent pod call. I'm reading a book right now about parenting and they, and they talk about, you know, you have uh, material value, like material value is exchanged. Like, you know, you, when people think of value, they usually think of material value. Like, you know, my $5 is worth a Starbucks, you know? So I'm willing to give up my $5 for that Starbucks. That's like material value is being exchanged, what you think something's worth. But then like emotional value being exchanged is way more powerful than a material value. You know, if you can have that connection with another human being and you're filling them up and uplifting them, you're putting deposits of emotional value into their bank account. Dude, they're going to do deals with you. They're going to want to be around you. They're going to do favors for you. You know, and that's not in a bad way, but just like you're exchanging emotional value. But if you reverse that and you come into a conversation like happy, upbeat, and that person drains your emotional value, you're not going to want to be around them. And there's so much power if you think about it from the material standpoint, material value standpoint, but now flipping like the script to an emotional value standpoint of how much that can change your life if you're constantly going into conversations like I'm going to make deposits of emotional value into this person. And that's what my I, wife did, you know, in that conversation. I love that. What was the name of that book again? It's over right there. I forget. I'll I'll, I'll give you it for the show notes. Okay. Um, 
Go ahead. I love that. I love that. Such a great point. It's just like those little soft things just aren't talked enough about in life, but it's so true. Like I know you, you know, every time I talk to you, you just bring positive energy uh, to the conversation. You just bring, you know, truly a positive energy. Right. And it's just, I want to be around you. Right. But there's so many other people in life where it's like, ugh, like they just literally, they bring the opposite. Uh, It's a negative energy and uh, they're making themselves miserable and they're making you know, everyone miserable around them. So it's, it's just so important. Exactly. And it's value creation kids. That's the name of the book. Got Hit it. Me. Got it. Value so. creation kids. Love it. So it sounds like you're transferring kind of, you're selling off some of your SDRs. I just know this from our conversations off to the mm-hmm. side. And are you, you're shifting more into kind of like LP type deals can you talk to us um, a little bit about that so there's there's a smart guy within our community called daniel del rio um and he talks about the consistency of lp deals you know like every year you know find a great operator you know find a, basically a great you know jockey and ride that horse so and then just every year invest you know a lot of times it's minimum of 50k so 50k or 100k into those deals and do that every year because if you do it every year, five years from now, those are going to start snowballing. Some will go bad, but you're going to hit you know 2x, 2.5x return on your 50, 100 grand with a pref the whole way. And if I think if I do it every single year, you know those are just going to be windfalls in five, 10 years. Uh, so that's one of my plays, Jake, is to continue just to do like kind of one LP deal a year. Um, I'm also investing in small multifamilies and kind of like the central Pennsylvania market where there's good employment around these markets, industrial, manufacturing. A lot of these properties are relatively affordable. The rents are high. So it's not that's not really like a an appreciation play. I don't think they're going to appreciate a ton, but they should be good cash flowing assets, like stable cash flowing assets. So my goal there is just to pick up, you know, a couple of those a year with my partner. So yeah, those are the two things I'm kind of focusing on. And then also like inch wide, mile deep. I feel like the last three years, Jake, as you know, I've kind of been running around in so many different directions. So I'm really refocusing on my main business, JDM. I own a machine shop with some guys. We're actually selling that machine shop and I'm also buying out one of my competitors. So that should add some revenue and some additional relationships into JDM. That's kind of what I'm focusing on right now. I love that, Brian. And it's such a one thing I want to touch on with the LP stuff. I I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like for anyone listening, you kind of want to get to a point where you have enough discretionary income, in my opinion, to start investing in in those LP deals or just have, you know, high earning W2 where you don't want to actively invest in real estate, right? So if your goal is to actively invest in real estate, I always say like, get that wheel going first with your own Mm -hmm. deals before investing in LP deals. But if your goal, if you have a really good paying W2 job and like your goal is to stay there, invest in LP deals all day long because you're getting all, if you pick a good jockey, you're buying into their deal that they found through their years of expertise and getting uh, usually either a 70% 70% of the benefits of the dealer 60. So it's usually a 70, 30 split or 60, 40 split just for, just for providing the capital and they, you know, and, and getting a great return, you know, a pref, usually a seven or 8% pref, as well as um, all the benefits at the refi and the exit. So tons of benefits yeah. to, to doing that and really, really cool. You did that. Well, no, um, that's a great point real quick. Let's stay on that because if let's say my, my wife was a high W2 earner, you know, 
I would, I would be doing LPs all day long. But my wife has real estate professional status because she manages all our STRs. So that's where it kind of forces me, quote unquote, forces me to continue to buy more real estate, like, you know, now getting into small multifamily because of the tax benefits and, you know, the bonus depreciation cost segregations. But if that wasn't the case and my wife was, you know, still a school teacher or did, you know, other things, then I would just be like hitting the easy button and investing in LP deals. For sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, oh, they hear real estate. Oh, I mean, I need to go buy this house, this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, if you're not passionate about real estate, I mean, you can totally get a lot of the benefits just by investing in LP deals. And it's also a really good opportunity to learn. So like if you're giving someone a chunk of capital, you earn the right to like get some of their time and some really successful people and start asking questions like how they underwrote the deal, how they're getting certain returns, uh, learning about the market that the deal is located, the cap rate, the NOI, all these things. And you can just start, I mean, you're A, making good money on the returns, but if you do it right, like you're giving them capital and you've earned the right to get some of their time and ask these questions and educate yourself. So if your goal is to do more active deals down the line, it's like a, a free education as a side benefit. Yeah, exactly. And then that's where it's like almost like seeking out the credible jockeys that have open funds to sit on their webinars or sit on their fundraising calls to your point, just to learn, you know, get put through the reps from an LP side till you find something you're comfortable with or until you save up that entry level amount and, and then deploy. Totally. So I want to shift gears. I know just from knowing you personally, you're big into family values and just bringing traditions and just lots of really good stuff around that. Brian, better than anyone I've seen. But I commend you for that because you're, you know, busy running the business and doing, you know, all these investments or whatever. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, they're really great in business, but their family falls by the wayside. You know, as a, a father, husband, all these things like even better at that than uh than the business. And the business oh, yeah. is super successful. That's saying mm-hmm. something. Um, so tell me a little bit about that because that's such a that's something that I feel like falls by the wayside for a lot of people. Like how do you prioritize that? What was the evolution of that? And what are some of like the values you put in place, some of the traditions you put in place? We'd love to hear that story. So I think my cornerstone is two things with with values and family and whatnot, which might not be the most traditional answer of I have the a mantra of living an interesting life. You know, and I think that goes if you phrase it that way, not like a big life or like, you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting life. And interesting is N equals one, like me, like what I think an interesting life is, not what society tells me what an interesting life is. You know, like I got pushback from family and things like that when we were coming down here to Florida, like I was ignoring obligations, but I knew that was going to like solidify memories. Like us coming to Florida, it threw away all friend dates. It threw away like all like uh, family activities. of like soccer practices, back to skip all, like all that stuff. Like it was just us, our crew, the four of us hanging out. And I think that's really like Ryan Holiday says, the garbage time. It's like those little moments. It's not like the Disney trip, but it's just like the walk on the beach. It's the like laughing as you're, you know, just playing a card game around the pool, like whatever that is. So combining an interesting life with wanting to be an everyday legacy. So we all have this like, you know, what people talk about legacy and they think of like, you know, just, you know, when I hear legacy, I think of like a 75, 80 year old man sitting at a campfire, smoking a cigar, sipping a bourbon, thinking like back on his life, you know, like the legacy I left. But I like to like make that like ever present now, which is like, how am I creating like the legacy of Brian in this moment right now with this interaction with my kid? 
Like, let's say I, you know, something happens to me tomorrow. Is he going to remember today? Is he going to remember his dad, how he showed up today or that interaction with a friend? Like, you don't know that next time you're going to see that friend. So just being an everyday legacy instead of like, I want my legacy to be this, you know, whatever you pontificate on it. No, bring it to like this moment right now. So that's kind of how I try to lead my life, make it super interesting and make it impactful for through just interactions because that's all we can control when it comes down to it. I love that. I love that. And tell me a little bit about how you've implemented that philosophy, I guess, like with your family and specifically the like, I feel like you've implemented a lot of traditions and family core values, things like that. Yeah. So we, I mean, we have our core values that like we have like in, like we actually had them in the kids playroom and we're actually moving them into the kitchen. So they're even like more present for everybody, you know, and it's things like McFarland's do hard things, you know, McFarland's like eat plants, even though that sounds ridiculous, but we know that like plants are like life giving to us. So like, and we bring those like values to the forefront to them, like we'll point to them and be like, Hey, remember, Remember what McFarland's do? And, you know, in traditions, like you said, are, are, are super important. Um, next year, we're going to start celebrating the Day of the Dead, which, you know, the Mexican tradition, like everybody's seen the movie Coco, I'm sure, and where you put like past family members that passed away, like on a dresser. And then you kind of like, you just like celebrate, like it almost allows those spirits of those people to come back in. And then you tell stories about, you know, grandfather, great grandfather. And what I think is cool about that tradition is, so it's going to make my parents who are coming to this get together, what stories are going to be told about me? You know, like they're going to be asking them themselves that question. So it's just like, I better make these stories. I better, I better become an everyday legacy because one day if Brian and his family and this tradition gets passed down, my picture is going to be up on that dresser and they're going to be telling stories about me, you know? And I think the impact there is just is just such a ripple effect. We try to be very intentional about tradition and ritual with the kids because again, I think that just solidifies it, imprints really deep memories of their childhood. I love that, Brian. I love that you do that. And I feel like it's almost like affirmations in a sense, right? Like if they grow up saying, you know, McFarland's do hard things, McFarland's eat plants, all these things you mentioned, like that is now embedded in them because it's such an impressionable age that it's just becomes a part of their identity. So that's so powerful. Yeah. And, and the, the thing is like, they see it like, you know, I run, you know, most mornings, you know, so before when they're waking up, like I'll be coming in the door from a run. And what does dad do? He goes and makes a big green smoothie every morning, you know? So it's, I think like you have to show and, you know, your kids, like they say, they see more than they hear, you know? So they've seen those actions they're seeing the values. And I think that's what the most important thing is. I love that. To that point, I did want to talk about one more thing before we wrap up here, Brian. Obviously, you're big into, I know you did like a bunch of ultra marathons. And you're just very big into taking care of yourself, your body, health, nutrition. I think, what are you, 40, 41 now? 42, um, Jake. 42. You. Well, I mean, I you look phenomenal for 42. And I know just from knowing you how much you take care of your body and how important those things are to you. So just love to hear a little bit more about that, like how that become a priority to you and what are some of like the routines and habits that you've implemented? I'm so undogmatic about my diet. So like, again, like I said before, N equals one, you're an experiment of one yourself. But I started eating a plant-based diet about 10 years ago. And for me, like I just had a ton of energy. So I didn't know what to do with that energy. So I just started for 
horse competent and started running. So that like spawned this 10 year trajectory of racing. So I've been racing ultra marathons, anything from 50K up to 100 mile races for 10 years. And usually I'm in the, you know, front of the pack, top five, 10 guys. I won a 50K outright. So I've had some success in the sport. And the biggest thing about ultra and what ultra taught me was the power of discipline and consistency, like me being so consistent about my training and how that I was able to reap the rewards in races. But truth be told, like I don't love running, but I was what I was doing, Jake, I was, and I didn't even realize I was doing it at the time. I was creating this deep self-love. Like I was proud of myself. And I think when you're proud of yourself and then you break these mental barriers by like first time I ran a 50 mile race, like, holy cow, I just ran 50 miles. It's like this, this ceiling you think. I just heard Colin O'Brady speak who, you know, was the first person to like traverse Antarctica by himself. And he says, you know, humans are like, they don't realize that you have an untapped reservoir of potential. So I was tapping into that reservoir. I didn't know when I did my first 50 miler or my hundred K and then hundred miler. And what that did was it created this internal belief system that I can achieve all these other things. Like I can, I can grow my business. I can take down that first property. And that's that, I mean, that's a great point to some of your listeners that want to get into real estate. Like you training for your first marathon is helping you buy your first rental property. Because what you're doing is you're starting to believe like I'm the person that shows up and trains and does something. And then you complete that marathon, you go through that struggle. It's weird, but now you have this type of confidence that you're more willing to take the chance and bet on yourself for that first piece of real estate. So it all like combines together. And there's a great documentary um, that I know you watched called Stuts. Um, And he talks in there about your life force. So when people are like trying to figure out their purpose, their passion, whatnot, it's like a pie chart, like a a pyramid, like I'm sorry, like a food chart. So 85% of that life force, he argues, is body. Then, you know, 15% is, or or, I'm sorry, 10% is relationships and then 5% is self. But he says 85% is body. Like if you want to have like an amazing life force, amazing energy, you need to be doing, you need to be eating right. You need to be moving your bodies. You need to be like getting good sleep. All those things matter. And now as I reflect back on my ultra running journey, I didn't realize at that time, but I was just like creating this really strong life force that was going to then catapult me into being successful in these other areas of life. I love that, Brian. It's so true. Um, and I'm sure starting to train and get more serious about running in these ultras, you started naturally just like eating healthier. Even if you're already eating healthier, uh, yeah. you probably just eating healthier and you're like, oh, I'm going to train in the morning. I'm going to go to sleep earlier. Like it's just a domino. Not have that extra cocktail. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I, I think it's so important and just not talked about enough. Like people, I think, think about, you know, working out and and whatnot as like a aesthetic thing, which is a a nice side benefit. Right. But there's so much more to it. it just benefits every aspect of life, how you feel, how you perform at your, you know, your job or whatever you're doing how you show up for your family, and then not to mention just your longevity, uh, you know, how long you're going to live, you know, just being able to be active with your kids deep into old age, and then, you know, get to look great at 42 like you as well. Um, so, uh, all these benefits with just taking care of your, your body, which, you know, takes care of your mind, et cetera, et cetera. So couldn't agree more. Well said, man. Well said. 
So, uh, Brad, I guess to, to kind of wrap things up here, it's been awesome chatting with you here today, learning more about your journey at JDM, you know, how you got into real estate, some of these more passive investments, talking about, you know, your, your family values and, and then kind of wrapping things up here, hearing about your, uh, crazy 100 mile races which is wild and the importance of health and and wellness but where where can people find out more about you brian if they want to learn a little bit more about what you're up to in your business um i mean probably the best place where you know we'll have like little reels and stuff is instagram instagram three by five life it's a little productivity product i own so three x five underscore life so me and my wife jam on like you know just things that we find interesting on there um so that's probably the best place to really connect awesome i love it and yeah we uh next time we chat well i totally forgot about that that could have been a whole podcast in itself talking about three by five life and the cool stuff you guys have created there so we'll, we'll definitely have to chat about that next time 